Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. It's a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today we'll be we'll be speaking with Jim Bertrand. He's one of the preeminent speakers on the Shroud of Turin, and we'll be talking about a handful of topics and look forward to the discussion. But before we get started, I thought I'd tell a, a short story. The Shroud reminds me, unfortunately, of one of the saddest thoughts for anyone, and certainly for any parent. When I think of Mary seeing her son first beaten and tortured and then dying, an ignominious death on the cross, uh, it really uh, hits me to the core. My brother was killed by a drunk driver, and when I think of what my mother must have gone through, it strikes me right in my heart. I'm certain that that's what hit Mary as well. When I look on the shroud and see the wounds, it draws out those feelings for me. But the shroud also speaks of the most joyous moments in any Christian's heart, and that is the resurrection, one of the most joyous events for all mankind. The mix of emotions, the good, the bad, is what the shroud represents for me. With that, we're going to uh, let me introduce Jim Bertrand. Jim began teaching uh, high school science in 1981, obtained his master's degree in education in 1987, and taught high school science for 39 years. He is now retired working full-time giving Shroud presentations. He and his wife have been married for 37 years and have six children. They are members of the St. Peter Parish in Lincoln, Nebraska. In the past seven years, he has given a Shroud talk over 230 times across 12 states, 20 dioceses, and has been seen by over 23,000 people, including the Eucharist Convention of 2016 in Auckland, New Zealand. He wants you to know that he does not make any money from this. All donations are forwarded to the American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud based in Colorado Springs. Those funds are used to promote this worthy endeavor of disseminating factual information about the Holy Shroud. Jim, thank you so much for being here. So glad to have you. So uh, let's get started. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how uh, about your backstory on how you got involved in the Shroud? Yes, well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate that. Uh, I, I had been studying the Shroud kind of personally, like a lot of people I think do for decades. Uh, and then in 1995, I invited uh, Dr. John Jackson, who was the world's foremost authority on the Shroud to come speak at my parish. I was just that interested in it. And fortunately, we got to host him and his wife, we got to be good friends, and I got to know him over the next 25 years since that time. And uh, around 2014, there was an international shroud conference here in the United States at St. Louis. And uh, Robert Seifker had been working with, with Dr. Jackson on accumulate, assembling all of his five decades of research into a book called The Critical Summary. And he was gonna present it at that conference and he asked me to come along as well. And so I did and attended those 42 scientific presentations. And at the conclusion of that, uh, Bob Seifer asked me if I'd be willing to uh, take this, this document, the critical summary from Dr. Jackson, put it in 
to a PowerPoint presentation that people could see. And, and I agreed to that and invested uh, a great deal of time into that. And that's what I've been doing the last uh, seven years now. And it's just been a, a wonderful experience. I, I haven't had a negative experience yet. Every place I've gone to, uh, the real diverse uh, audiences and states and, and faith backgrounds and those kinds of things, it, it's all been very positive. So, so for me, I'd say these last seven years, I, I've kind of uh, really increased my awareness and knowledge about the Shroud. And, and I, I have to keep up to date on that every few months, looking at the, the new research and papers and videos and things that come out. So hopefully that answers your question, Guy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's fascinating. And you're right. Uh, you know, the Shroud's been around for 2,000 years and over the last uh, 100 years or so, uh, certainly the scientific uh, efforts really started. And then with STIRP and everything, it really then progressed. And John Jackson is uh, one of those people. And and uh, and actually, it, it's uh, that in the same way that, that got me really started in it. So, uh, yeah, fantastic. And, and it amazes me as well as how much keeps changing and how many new things come out and, and uh, you know, little facts or bigger facts or new findings and uh, just fascinating. Uh, one thing, though, um, we, as we were talking, as we were preparing for this, one of the things you, you mentioned is why you felt God uh, preserved the shroud for us. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, well, you know, uh, people have become saints uh, since, you know, <laughs> as long as God has created people. And, they, and many of them never were aware of the shroud. The shroud is not necessary for, you know, reaching heaven. But during all these centuries that it remained somewhat hidden, there were a few people that were able to, you know, come into contact with it and see it. But now it just seems like ever since 1898, when that first photographic negative was taken, that uh, the interest in the Shroud really began in, in the 20th century, 21st century, certainly a time of uh, many skeptical people that are thinking that everything needs to be explained in a scientific way in order to be considered truth. And the fact that, uh, that the more we study the Shroud, the more coherent the story becomes. And it just gets stronger and stronger with time. So perhaps he's preserved it for the people of these times who would need that, that extra faith and reason uh, mix to, to, to make that step of faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the, re and the resurrection. So the people of our time, perhaps, I think, are maybe more receptive to the Shroud from the standpoint that it does hold up so well in the light of scientific research. Yeah, and I think I, I think you're uh, you're so right with that. And uh, you know, certainly uh, these times, just uh, with the divisions and things like that, there's got to be something that can hopefully get us past that and get us back to uh, you know really thinking about uh, what God means and what God can can do for us. So, how do you think an individual should feel about the shroud? Well, science can't prove the resurrection, and science can't duplicate the resurrection. But, but that's a shortcoming of science and not the resurrection. And so for people, I think we need to have a balance of, of both our faith and our reason and those things that we can perceive with our senses, you know, we, we call that reason. But there are realities that we can't perceive with the senses. For example, you know, if God exists at the Trinity, uh, heaven and hell, the existence of angels, uh, these type, uh, we have an eternal soul those supernatural realities we have to accept on faith and that if we have uh, an openness to both of those I think we have a better view of reality because if, if a person's view of reality is just limited to the scientific world alone 
then that that's a very limited view of reality because of the higher supernatural transcendental realities above that so i guess that in my answer to your question would be that that people should see this as a consistent with their faith and reason you know if if the shroud is not an artist's work, and, and Barry Schwartz has gone on record saying we've proven that it's not an artist's work uh, because of many unique traits about it, superficiality being one of them, uh, the 3D nature of it. And if it's not a natural process, then then, then what's left, you know? And, and that's where reason and faith, you know, join together in, in seeing the resurrection as an explanation for that. You know, the, the shroud is an effect, and, and I believe the resurrection to be the cause and there's a lot of study on what was the mechanism. You know, if you look at that picture, the light areas on that were closest to the cloth, and like right on the nose, the cheeks, and there appears to be a direct correlation between the cloth, the body distance, at the instant of image formation, and yet there's no side images. You know, you don't see any ears on that. And so that would indicate perhaps that gravity may have been a factor in pulling it away from the sides because there's no side images. So. So um, light uh, and, and uh, gravity appear to be some factors in that. And regarding the light, uh, that was discovered actually by an instrument made by NASA. Uh, NASA designed the, the BP-8 image analyzer to map the surface of the moon, which is sensitive to light intensities, all right? And so this image gives us a 3D relief showing that it is sensitive to light intensities. And so we, we believe that somehow in the mechanism of how that image was formed, uh, light intensity was a factor because no other picture on Earth will give us a 3D relief when you look at it underneath the VP8 image analyzer from NASA. Yeah, that, it is uh, just fascinating. And you mentioned one thing, you said science cannot uh, prove the resurrection, but it also can't disprove it. And so it's, uh, it's kind of interesting how, you know, here we have science and yet in reality, all that science has done you still have to have faith that the uh, you know that that the resurrection is there, but it's also so much stronger and so much more meaningful than uh, than science. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think the uh, shroud would mean for a non-Christian? Well, you know, <clears throat> in light of uh, the, the few non-Christians I've spoken with about this, um, they don't seem to have a problem with it. Well, maybe this could be Jesus. It seems to be a mysterious image of Jesus. But then the next step beyond that is, you know, what was the cause, you know, was the resurrection. Perhaps I think there, there are non-Christians who accept that this image, okay, we can't explain how this image is formed, but for them it doesn't necessarily prove the resurrection. Or if it does prove a resurrection, is Jesus Christ God? You know, was Jesus Christ just a man only? And of course we believe that he was God with a human nature and a divine nature. So it doesn't uh, definitively uh, convert people, so to, so to speak. But, but the shroud has never been a debate that I see. I, I simply see it as, you know, you present the facts and let the facts speak for themselves and then let the people's own well-reasoned judgment under their conclusion about, okay, if this is not natural, then this is supernatural. Uh, I did have an occasion to speak with some uh, many non-Christians in a couple of the prisons that I went to, uh, the Nebraska State Penitentiary for Men, <clears throat> and that's in Lincoln. And then there's another one for women in New York, the Women's Correctional Facility. And the one for the women was, was really a memorable one. It was on uh, about four years ago on the morning of Good Friday. And there was lightning and rain and thunder, and it was just a, a real storm. 
And uh, in the midst of this, you know, we had to wait till the, for the lightning to go away before they could come out of their barracks to come to the main building we were going to be in. So it started about a, a half an hour late. And I think most of these women had never heard of the shroud. And so as I was beginning to speak about it, they were starting to see this and like, wow, I never realized something like this could exist. And, and usually people wait till the end to ask questions. But what was neat, the lady started asking questions along the way about every second or third slide. What's that? How did that, where did that come from? What are those holes? And they were just really, really very keenly interested in it. And by the time I was through, uh, they seemed to be radiant with joy and just beaming about the resurrection because the resurrection, <clears throat> as, uh, if you have faith in that, if Jesus was resurrected and says that that's part of our future too, that gives them hope. And I think for many people, the, the, the shroud is a message of hope. You know, these these women in prison were certainly living through their Good Friday. You know, many of them have children, you know, under the age of five or so, and they, they can't see them. <clears throat> these women probably cry themselves to sleep at night and they don't have much hope, but after encountering the face of Jesus and the resurrection and looking forward to that with hope, then that gives them something to look forward to in terms of their Easter Sunday. And for us too, you know, we're, we're living through some good Fridays and I've no doubt we have some more ahead of us, but we need to keep in mind that at the end, we have that ultimate joy of an Easter Sunday in our future as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's definitely, uh, uh, you know, a great story about the, the value of the of, 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 of hope uh, and that the shroud kind of represents that uh, that as a as something we can actually tangibly see um, let me switch over a little bit and uh, you know one of the one of the challenges with the shroud is that uh, you know it has a documented history and then it does there's a lot of pieces missing and then there's you know maybe then the going back you know further even to the resurrection itself and that time in, in Golgotha in Jerusalem that uh, you know, there's the uh, the shroud and the mention of the shroud in the Bible, and then there's this period in the middle, and you you could argue how big or small or how long or short it is, but this missing period, uh, you know, where there's no written historical uh, record of the shroud. Um, after about, and I don't remember the year exactly, 1350 or so, there starts to be a, a, re a record that the shroud is on, exp you know, is being exhibited and shown, and then uh, is written. Uh, tell us a little bit about that that missing period in there, and some of the things that uh, that you believe really still prove that the shroud itself is uh, is authentically is the authentic uh, uh, burial shroud of Jesus Christ. Certainly. Well, there's some there's some open questions regarding the shroud. For instance, uh, what caused the discrepancy of the carbon dating in 1988? Was it this or this or this? That's an open question. And many of the other open questions regard its history. Uh, we know it was in Constantinople in the year 1201, in that it was recorded uh, by Nicholas Mezerites as being in the inventory at the Royal Palace. And, 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 and we had an eyewitness account a couple years later in 1204 of a French crusader, Robert de Clary, who witnessed the shroud being venerated. And he describes how it was lifted up out of a box you know, and it doesn't take much imagination to imagine candles burning on each side of it and, and the people venerating the shroud. And to verify his eyewitness account, there are fold marks in the shroud, several of them. And linen has somewhat of a memory. And if you fold a linen for a long period of time, that crease is still there. And the creases, the folds in the, in the shroud linen indicate it was folded in a certain way that it could indeed fit in the box 
as, as Robert DeClary described, it'd be about two cubits wide, about 21 inches wide, and they would raise it up and they would see the front half, say from the waist to the, the head there. Uh, so that was some historical information. There was, if we go back farther than that, in 692, there was a coin called the, the Justinian II Tremesis coin. And that coin bears a, a remarkable uh, likeness to the shroud. And it was studied by Dr. Giulio Fonte of the University of Padua in Italy. And he looked at 12 different features of the face regarding the ratio of the nose to the eyes, the cheeks, the asymmetrical face. And to get all these features right, uh, would be astronomically nearly impossible. It'd be like 10 to the eighth power against being able to just do this. And there were many other coins in Europe that were made and all of them had those imperfections. But this one that was, that was minted in Constantinople in 692 matches it like a glove. And so he concluded in his book uh, with 99.99% certainty that whoever made that coin, whoever minted that coin in 692 had to have been in the presence of the shroud, you know, to get all those details. And well, looking at those open questions of history, you know, from 1204 to 1355, those are referred to as the missing years. And there've been some possibilities there. You know, it was it the Knights Templar. That sounds like a very romantic one that the TV shows like to show. There doesn't seem to be very solid evidence on that. Did it go through Jean de Vergy's family line? She was the man when you married Jacques de Charnay or did it go through Geoffrey de Charnay's line? So those are the open questions that haven't been opened yet. But if we back up a little further than that, you know, how did it get from Jerusalem to Constantinople? There have been two suggestions I've proposed, one by, by Ian Wilson, that it went through Edessa and then to Constantinople in 944, and the other one proposed by Dr. Jack Markwork, that it went from Jerusalem to Antioch and then to Constantinople in 574. So those are open questions on the history, but regarding other artwork, uh, we see a, a picture from the year 550 AD, and most people are familiar with this picture called the Pantocrator icon. And in, in a court of law, if you have 45 to 60 points of congruence between say the artist drawing and the defendant, that's enough to prove you're talking about the same person. Well, when we look at the points of congruence between that Pantocrator face and the shroud, there are over 150 points of congruence as determined by, by Alan Wanger and another researcher. And, and so it, there's another point saying that, well, we don't know, you know who made that picture, but whoever made it had to have been looking at the shroud to get all those features right. And what's interesting, guys, we, we discovered that picture at the foot of Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments, is St. Catherine's Monastery, and that this is where this picture was discovered. There's actually 41 Pantocrators that follow the same pattern of the Lord's right hand raised in blessing and his left hand holding the book, the mercy and justice of God. But the Pantocrator from 550 evidently was the, was the prototype that all the other ones uh, copied. And that has followed artwork down the centuries. Uh, in, in, in talking about how Robert de Clary observed in 1204, in April of 1204, his eyewitness account of the shroud being raised up on Fridays. We have artwork from a uh, century or two before that showing that the shroud was indeed raised up out of a box and his right hand over the left, just as we see on the shroud. Uh, you know, very interesting details. They're called the, the man of sorrows icons. And these icons are numerous from those centuries. So artwork, and some, some eyewitness account from Robert DeClary and coins and pictures and things definitely 
give a consistent, uh, I think, uh, view, a coherent view that, that the shroud was present in these early centuries, but we just didn't have a day-by-day -day tracking of it then. And if you think about it, people accept, let's say, that, the, that they've, re they've recovered the bones of King Tut, right? You know, they got that these are the remains of King Tut. Nobody seems to question that. Uh, but we don't have a day-by-day -day accounting of it, but yet the evidence is enough that we're willing to accept that. And and whereas the evidence on the shroud is under much, much greater scrutiny. But you know, when the uh, Sterk team published their results in 1978, there were those 33 scientists that, that had 120 hours of access to the shroud. And for three years, they published their scientific information in scientific professional peer review journals across the world. And, and after three years, they, they made their uh, final statement, so to speak. They couldn't answer the question, how was the image formed? But they did state these three facts, that uh, there are no, there's no pigment or any type of uh, stuff on the image bearing fibers. There's just nothing there. It's just somehow yellowed in some way. And it's not the work of an artist, and this is not a natural process. And, and those three facts still hold up today after 40 years and after scientific scrutiny. And to me, that, that's, that's a mark of good science, that those three things can still be stated and they've withstood the test of time. Yeah, and I think, uh, and I, I, mean, I, I agree with you, it, 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 it's kind of surprising to me that you have a written record uh, and that's kind of believed, but then you have a coin that you know had to have been the the artist that uh, that minted that coin that designed that coin had to have seen the shroud to be able to mint that coin similarly with the the pentocrator that that artist had to have seen the shroud in order to be able to do that uh, and make that painting and so I, I i always find it i don't know difficult to understand how an anti-shroudist especially those that that really believed in the carbon-14 uh, testing that was done in in, uh, in the late 80s, how they can discount the proof of the coins, the art, and all of the other things that you mentioned, Robert DeClary and, and what have you, uh, that they discount those and say, nope, it's uh, you know 1260 to 1390 and it can't be anything earlier. I, I, I just have trouble with that. So sure. yeah, I, 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 yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say some. Perhaps some people are, are just not aware of the data, you know, and they think that we're just repeating things. But in fact, the, the, the data on that uh, that that coin I can give you was that when Dr. Julia Bonte wrote this book, The First Century of Christ, uh, The Shroud of Turin, First Century of Christ, one of the twelve features was the ratio between the eyes and the nose. And so, from the middle of the pupil to your middle of the pupil, that's considered a distance of 1.0, and the length of the nose comes out to be 1.8. That's on the shroud. Well, on this Tremesis coin, it is exactly a 1 to 1.28 ratio. All right. And you just don't get those things by accident. Uh, the, 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 the facts on that kind of speak for themselves. And that's just one of the features. Right. And there were 12 right. of them. So perhaps people that doubt it maybe uh, aren't, aren't aware of the, of the objectivity that has gone into this. And another thing about the shroud is that for, for people that uh, their faith rests on the resurrection, we don't have to have the shroud be authentic. Yeah. You know, if the shroud were suddenly declared that it wasn't authentic, it would not affect my faith one iota because my faith rests on the resurrection. But the fact that the shroud is so consistent with that uh, certainly makes it easy to see faith and reason together. But if the shroud were proven to be not authentic, we could afford to be wrong on this. Yeah. Yeah. But for the person who doubts the resurrection, they can't afford to be wrong. 
because if it is authentic, then you have to make a choice on how you're, you're going to live your life. And it's, it's a wonderful open opportunity to, to see heaven, eternity, and a, and a loving savior that we have that has, has suffered so much for us. And so, you know, I'm sure God has his reasons for doing things, but for me, that's one thing that I see with it. Yeah, and I uh, agree with you about the faith and the questions. And uh, I always think of the upper room and Thomas saying, I won't believe until I can stick my fingers in the wound and and uh, and in the you know the holes in the, the hands and wrists and uh, and uh, and yet uh, you know it's that you know I, I won't I won't believe until I see even him you know early on with the the apostles uh, it it must have been just so eye-opening and and uh, to see you know to see Jesus coming through the through the door or through the wall however he got in there and then to have him you know be seen in other places by the thousands and then on the road to Emmaus and and what have you just uh, just fascinating um, and uh, so anyway one other thing uh, that I thought would be interesting and uh, is the face cloth of Oviedo maybe you could talk a little bit about that sure there there is another cloth it's about 33 inches by 21 inches that has a series of blood stains and fluids on it and it is currently in Oviedo Spain it has been there since at least 714 AD and in studying this sudarium uh, tradition has said that it came out of Palestine uh, in about the year 611 when it was being attacked by the Persians I believe and to escape that it was it was taken into Spain and when we compare that, and it was always revered as the faith cloth that, that had been on Christ uh, when he was crucified. And some people wonder, well, well, how can that be? Well, when after Jesus had expired on the cross, you know, he's dead there and his blood is dripping out of his eyes, his nose, his mouth, his ears. And in Jewish culture, blood is considered part of the body. And so it would be entirely consistent for them to take a, a head cloth of some type and wrap it around his head to preserve that blood so that when he's taken to the tomb, the blood goes with him and his whole body is there, so to speak. And so you don't see any image on this cloth, but when we when we look, imagine this cloth being on his head for a matter of, who knows, 10, 15 minutes, whatever, from the time he's taken down from the cross and carried to the tomb, and then that head cloth is set aside. And then, of course, after the resurrection, this could be the head cloth rolled up in a place by itself. There's also some open question that there was another uh, head cloth in there as well. But regarding the Sudarium of Oviedo, these blood stains uh, are the same blood type, they're both AB. But beyond that, you can overlap them on one to one transparencies, and there are blood stains that match up. You know, and there's also uh, travertine argonite soil, which is found in Jerusalem and only a handful of places on earth on the nose from the shroud. It's also found in this head cloth. And we also find pollen grains from Jerusalem that are unique to Jerusalem on this head cloth and, and so this is considered first-class scientific information that is it, it's accepted by the scientific world that that head cloth the sudarium and the shroud had to have wrapped the same person at the same time to get those consistencies yeah yeah uh, absolutely and um, uh, that's it's funny how the shroud gets a lot of uh, gets a lot more exposure so to speak uh, to people like us in the sudarium a little bit less and yet the two really go almost hand in hand in terms of uh, potentially and certainly I believe and I think you do too that both of them that were there in the tomb and were there during the uh, during uh, Jesus resurrection and at that at that particular moment 
Um, but you did mention something uh, as well, uh, this concept of mechanically transparent. Uh, tell us what you mean by that and how that applies to uh, what we're talking about. Sure. Well, you know, what does mechanically transparent mean? Well, how can we recreate the resurrection? Well, we can't recreate the resurrection, but if at the instant of the resurrection, light and gravity were somehow involved with putting the, as a mechanism, perhaps the cloth collapsing through the body would have been what that scenario may have looked like. And, the, and this body that the cloth collapsed through, we, we call that mechanically transparent. It's no longer supporting the cloth. And so the, imagine this is the cloth over the person's nose, you know, and as it collapses down through the body, pulls out at the sides, and so you have no side images because anything that was more than a few millimeters away from the body does not show up on the shroud. And so this, this idea of something being mechanically transparent is something we're familiar with. If, if we think how Christ appeared to the apostles on Easter night, remember they're locked in the upper room out of fear and Christ comes among them. Well, how can that be? Well, if his body was mechanically transparent, if we accept on faith that he had a resurrected body, then we could accept that he could go through that door like it wasn't there. And his body was no longer subject to the, the laws of physics and nature as we know them. All right, so if that's a mechanically transparent body on Easter night, then the question becomes, when did that moment begin? And if that moment began at the instant of the resurrection, then that would explain how a cloth could have collapsed through a mechanically transparent body in the plane of gravity, pulling out from the sides, resulting in a vertically aligned 3D image that we see on the shroud with a cloth to body distance uh, a compatibility corresponding with uh, what we see in the picture up here in the photographic negative. Yeah, that's, a, that's about a 15-page scientific paper summed up in a minute there. If you've ever read Dr. Jackson's paper on this, it's fascinating. Uh, it's on uh, shroudofturin.com, and he has diagrams and explains that. But I do the best I can here by just word of mouth if I can. Yeah. I, I would like to pass on, Guy, a couple of other little-known facts for your audience as they watch this, because many times you don't see these kinds of things on, on television programs. Um, one of them is that there is no image under the blood. And if you think about that, if, if you were an artist and you were going to make the shroud, you, you would have somehow put the image on it. You would have you know, painted it or rubbed something on it or dropped it on a hot statue. And you, you get the image of the body on the fiber and then you would put the blood on top of it so that it could be anatomically correct. And the blood stains on the shroud are anatomically correct, right? So an, an artist would put the image first and the blood on top, right? But the shroud does not show that. The shroud shows that the blood went onto the to the linen first. Good Friday and Holy Saturday as he laid in the tomb. And the image came on afterwards, Easter Sunday. And so once again, this consistency of blood first, image second, is consistent with the gospels of, of a Good Friday followed by an Easter Sunday. And, and there's another uh, uh, little, little known fact that people don't know about the shroud. If they examine the, sh the scourge marks across the back, they're very distinct. You can see the little pairs of balls as he was uh, uh, scourged with the flagrum. But then as you get up around the shoulder area, it becomes much more blurred and disfigured. And so if he were scourged and then had to bear a beam across his back, most likely a single patibulum, weighing 60 to 90 pounds perhaps, the movement of that across his shoulders would mutilate the scourge marks. Mm. And so the fact that we see clear scourge marks on his back and blurry scourge marks across his shoulders is also consistent with the Gospels of a scourging 
followed by having to bear a weight across your shoulders. Well, and that's one thing too, is, uh, is how consistent the shroud is to the accounts that are in the, in the gospels in terms of the, uh, you know, the crossbar, the, what did you call it? The tibulum? The petibulum. The petibulum, the petibulum is a horizontal beam. The crossbar uh, on, from the cross. Uh, and then you have the scourging and the scourge marks and hundreds of them. It's just, that's where, you know, when I look at it and I see those and that's where the, you know, I think about how Mary, uh, how she, how, she, how could she bear having seen her son uh, to suffer like that and, and realizing that at the end of that, you know, his death is near. And then of course, you, you know, to have him up on the cross and having the nails in through his wrists and through his ankles and then having to, you know, watch him take his last breaths. Uh, uh, just just incredible. <clears throat> it really is moving to think about that. I would like to take that opportunity when you talk about the number of scourge marks to point out something because sometimes people will say, well, I saw this on one program, but I read this someplace else and they think that there's misinformation. Uh, the way you count the number of scourge marks is a very subjective art. All right. And so I've seen variations from 200 to 600. All right. In, in the critical summary book that Dr. Jackson has, it, the number is 372. There are 159 on the front and something like 213 on the back. But in reality, there were more scourge marks than that because there's no side images. Mm. He, would have had side, he would have had scourge marks across the sides of his ribs. So, you know, it, we don't really you know, need to know the exact number of scourge marks on the back in order to say, well, we need to be consistent about this just because it's one of those areas where there's an open question. So uh, whether you're reading about the Shroud's travels before the 12th century or the number of scourge marks, there, there's open questions in those areas that maybe uh, it's difficult to find agreement on. Yeah, and and I guess maybe that's part of it too, because uh, you know you look at Ian Ian Wilson uh, and his path of the shroud through Edessa, and then you have others uh, potentially having the shroud through uh, Antioch, and then you have others that the uh, that uh, the, the the Romans bought the uh, the shroud from the Muslims after you know after the Muslims took over Edessa and what have you. It's and maybe maybe that's part of the problem. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, all of the things that you talked about uh, in terms of the coins and the pentocrator and, and then certainly the, uh, the congruity between the story and the Bible and then what's seen on the, on the shroud itself, uh, all of those things really, in, in my mind, are, are historical proof with some, okay, some questions in the middle as to exactly what happened. And uh, now you, a couple of things you didn't mention, but uh, I, I know you you know about them. One is the Prey Codex. Maybe uh, talk a little bit about that as well. Well, I wish we had some way to show the slides to the people here with a, with a screen share, but uh, there there is a manuscript that's about 10 inches by 6 inches in a museum library in Budapest, Hungary. And it is the oldest surviving parchment in the country of Hungary. It's called the Prey Codex or the Prey Codex Manuscript and it depicts Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And you can see, you know, the body being laid on the linen, you see the right hand over the left, you know, there's Christ's body being prepared on Good Friday. Then the lower picture depicts an Easter Sunday and there's an angel pointing to the, the empty cloths and there's the three women arriving at the tomb and there are red crosses, which we believe represent the bloodstains from the shroud. But there's two other details in that picture that, that point to the fact that whoever made this picture, and by the way, it was recorded on their inventory in the year 1192. It was made sometime prior to that. Who knows if we're talking 10 years or a century before that. In, and inside that, that the, the, 
the uh, picture, there's details showing the three-in-one herringbone weave. And the shroud is a very unique type of weave. You just don't find the three-in-one herringbone weave on linen. Uh, it's very, very rare. It's never been found in Europe in linen at any time in history, but it was present before, during, and after the time of Christ, this, this Jewish weave with the three-in-one. And then inside, there are these holes that are shaped like a, a backward seven. And we find these on the shroud in four locations. And we can tell uh, how the shroud is folded because they're like mirrors of each other, okay? So we know, okay, these were folded together and then it was folded together this way. And we know that when you fold it this way, the shroud would be four cubits by one cubit, which is about seven feet by 21 inches. Uh, yeah, and it fits very neatly over an altar. And these four holes show up right in the middle. Mm -hmm. And it's been suggested, and uh, reasonably so, uh, in 2002, I believe, that uh, perhaps that there was some incense in a, in a bowl, and it was, and the shroud was being venerated on an altar, and you know, four large pieces and 15 or 20 smaller pieces fall onto the shroud. They'd be brushed away quickly, but it would take less than three seconds for them to burn mm -hmm. through 1.3 millimeters. That's four layers of shroud. So we believe those holes were put because it was on the altar. And then you ask the question, what was it doing on the altar? Well, in the Catholic Mass, in all 29 rites, and in all 15 rites of the Orthodox Church, there is a linen that is folded and is used on the altar for the consecration. And this dates back to the first century and that the Holy Mass is the sacrifice of Christ. And, and we believe that Jesus rose from the shroud and we receive the living God. We don't receive a dead Jesus in communion. We receive the living God and that, that the linen that we have on the altar for masses today goes back to that shroud uh, of, of the resurrection on Easter morning. Yeah, it did. Uh, and that is a, a fascinating story. And, uh, and, and it's interesting how, uh, how, the, how that may have actually caused that. And then, uh, but as being proof, potentially that it was, uh, that the shroud was known well before even the 1201 that you mentioned in Constantinople and all of these different points really are kind of proof that there is uh, you know good congruence that 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 history or that the shroud existed uh, prior to when um, you know when it was first uh, started to be recorded in 13 in the 1350s or so one yes. thing you'd uh, mention uh, if you don't mind me kind of changing the subject a little bit uh, for me uh, the book of Isaiah is you know is incredible in its foretelling of of, uh, of of the of the New Testament basically and of Jesus Christ and one of the verses that you mentioned in one of your talks is uh, Isaiah 50. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 and I'll read it it's I offered my back to those who beat me my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting um, maybe talk a little bit about that in terms of how that was written hundreds of years prior to the uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus and yet it reflects so much of what we even see in the shroud and what we also know uh, from the story of Jesus from the Gospels yeah, certainly, Guy, I'd be glad to. I'm glad you brought that up. I think I can get you a little closer up on this picture here. Okay, you know, the, the, the scourge marks on the back speak for themselves, but if you look at this face here, if you look at the right cheek, it appears slightly lighter in color. And that's because the forensic pathologist for Los Angeles County has, has verified that this right cheek shows significant swelling relative to the left. And because it's swelled up, it's tighter against the cloth. And that's why it's lighter in color. 
So my, my cheeks, uh, my face that didn't actually open buffets, that shows the face being struck. And now if you look at the chin, right? You see that little black circle down there across the, the line goes there. That black circle is a missing beard. His beard has been pulled out. My, 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 I gave my beard to those who, who pulled it out. I gave my cheeks to those who pulled my beard. And, and so what I'm saying, I guess, is that the, the shroud is a physical manifestation of how that prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled. Yeah, yeah, and that's just, it's fascinating the, uh, uh, how that, um, how that uh, matches so, uh, so closely. It, it, it's just, uh, it just really shows the, uh, the, the God inspiration of the writing and the canonization of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it really does. Yes, I agree. <laughs> so, um, uh, what other questions do you think kind of remain uh, about the shroud? Uh, what do you think is really open in your mind that uh, that you would potentially hope and see might get resolved here in the next couple of uh, well, a couple of years, couple of decades, couple of centuries? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> well, historically, I think it's it's possible to perhaps resolve how did the, what was the shroud's route from from Jerusalem to Constantinople. There's agreement on that. Did it, did it go through Antioch uh, uh, or did it go through, uh, you know, that says the Mendelian. I, I would like to think that there, that's going to be resolved. Uh, there, there's a, a new book that just came out by Dr. Jack Markworth that's going to be read. We'll see what, what scholars say about that. So in coming decade, that's a possibility. Uh, also, uh, he's also worked on the question of the missing years from 1204 from the sack of Constantinople until 1355, when Geoffrey de Charnay displays it in France. Uh, that 150 year period uh, appears that it might have been linked in some way to St. Louis IX, whose cousin was Baldwin III. Baldwin III was the emperor of Constantinople when the sack took place. And it's possible that it could have gone that route and basically through Geoffrey de Charnay's family. So I think those two historical questions would be nice to be answered. I'm not sure if we'll get the one on, okay, so it, we know there was a persecution in Jerusalem in 44 AD. And was that the time when Peter may have brought the shroud with him because uh, the, the last gospel of the Hebrews that's shared with us by, by St. Jerome states that the high priest brought with him, you know, the linens, um, that's not part of the canon of the Bible. So that's an open question. We, we would need some more confirmation on that. And I don't foresee that in the near future. So those first at least five centuries might always remain an open question. And then of course, the last question um, was, uh, what was the, the, the mechanism, you know, for, mm for putting this image, how was the image formed? You know, mm. I, I, I believe like many people that the cause and effect, I believe in cause and effect that the resurrection was the cause and this image that we see on the shroud is the effect, but what was the mechanism, mm. you know, and we appears to be light and gravity, but, but God's ways are not necessarily <laughs> our ways. You know, if you think about the other miracles God did, you know, his first miracle at Cana, you know, they fill these stone jars full of water. That's mm. H2O, right? And minutes later, the steward tastes it, and it's wine. That's carbon nitrogen. That's that's a creation thing that uh, matter wasn't there. Now the matter is there. If you had taken scientists present at the wedding at Cana and asked them to sample that wine and explain it, they would all state that it was, oh, months or years old, and it must have come from these grapes, and they would all be wrong. Our science would be wrong in trying to understand a miracle. 
And yeah. so we have, to, we have to be open to that same limitation with the shroud in that, you know, did the cloth, does God have to have it fall at 9.8 meters per second squared? Does he have to have the radiant energy travel at 186,000 miles per second? Uh, God can do what he wants to. His ways are not our ways. So we may not ever duplicate the mechanism, but I think the there's enough information there to reasonably put together cause and effect. Yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, by the way, that wine was uh, supposedly the best wine. Yeah. I've always wondered, I would love to taste that. That's what wine should taste like. I've always wanted a glass. Yeah, exactly. So uh, <laughs> if, you know, if they had some left over. I don't know where it's at, but they probably got all drank, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think the other thing uh, that's kind of interesting as well is, uh, you know, when will and if, when will there be potentially another radiocarbon dating? And uh, uh, you know, so the last one was in the late '80s, and uh, you know, it, it kind of reminds me maybe maybe the Pope, the, the current owner of the shroud, maybe he'll let it be uh, uh, you know re-carbon dated again at some point and I kind of liken that to the 40 years in the wilderness of the Israelites uh, you know God had to wait till the uh, kind of the, the stiff-necked stubborn <laughs> Israelites to kind of die off and then the new ones would come along and they'd be ready to enter into Canaan so uh, maybe <laughs> maybe that would we'll be 2028 right 2028 yeah exactly <laughs> yeah well two things two things on that um, Number one, if we, we before we could do another carbon dating, we would need to ascertain and understand what was the the reason why that we had the discrepancy in 1988. That it was getting a century, you know, 91 to 97 years younger every inch as you move toward the center of the shroud. Because until we can uh, describe, until we can understand what was the cause for that, another carbon dating test might give us a very very wild answer. Uh, for example, one of these threads from that area was given to the Tucson lab in 1994. A little thread about that long and one end of that thread, this is the same dating lab in Tucson, Arizona that was used in 1988. One end tested out at 200 AD, the other end tested out at 1000 AD. Now how can you have the same thread be so discrepant there? There's something very mis mysterious going on that we can't explain and so any valid carbon dating test would have to address that question and be able to okay here's what we need to do if we're going to get an accurate reading because if they don't uh, another reading will just simply come up at, at probably at, maybe even newer because i don't know if you knew it or not but from yeah. after the fire of 1997 uh the, the shroud was placed in a new container and that container had been doused with thymol c10h14o all right a lot of carbon and it may have rejuvenated and gotten to those fibers, so to speak, to alter the carbon 14 to carbon 12 ratio. It might even appear to be younger than the, the, the 1988 test. So we really have nothing to gain from another carbon test at the present time if we can't understand what caused the problems in the first place. Yeah. And then, then the second thing I would bring out is that certainly we would look forward to further testing on the shroud. There are, there are 25 other areas that can be tested besides carbon dating. And perhaps that would be a nice uh, thing to happen in the future. But uh, is there enough information based on what we know for people to to come to their own well-reasoned judgment? And, and I believe there is. Uh, there's another group of people who feel like all they need to do is test it and do another carbonating test. It'll come out the first century and then it's resolved for all time. Yeah, I think that's impossible. I don't adhere to that. Yeah, yeah, I don't either. 
Yeah. You know, it's funny, and uh, sorry to interrupt you there, but um, uh, uh, Joe Marino in his latest book, uh, it's a, inter- I thought it was interesting, but it, it really goes through every piece of evidence that is out there on the on the, the time before the carbon dating, the carbon dating itself, and then the, the time afterward. And and what was interesting was that it, it almost seemed like those people that were part of the carbon dating really wanted to debunk the shroud as the authentic burial uh, cloth of Jesus Christ. When in reality now over the last, whatever that is, 30 years, I guess, the radiocarbon dating has been debunked. That carbon dating was done so poorly. Uh, you know, not only were the samples done wrong, but they found cotton in the in the cloth, which wouldn't be right. They didn't clean the cloth potentially because what you were talking about in terms of how they were holding it, and then the fact that there's different dates as you as you progress along that one piece of thread. There's been so many different things that have kind of debunked the uh, the debunking, so to speak. That. Um, yeah, uh, were, know, I think all of the other proof that you've mentioned and that's out there, and um, and and uh, and I, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to uh, you know learn more about it. But all of the other uh, proof is out there is almost overwhelming, and you have one that that is kind of uh, stands out as being wrong, and yet that one, technically and procedurally and operationally, was done incorrectly. And in the world of science, you you would throw out that that one test yeah, that doesn't exactly. that's, in, that's incoherent with this yeah. other vast vast yeah. volume of information. It's just overwhelming. And and there were there were fifteen protocols that were violated in that as well. And it, it came out uh, by Tristan Casabianca. He initiated this process in 2017. You spoke about that with Barry, I believe. And in 2019, he published his paper uh, showing that there was significant deviation and that this was an invalid, that the data shows that it's, it's, from an objective point of view, you do something called the chi-square test. And, and under the, the, the scrutiny of the chi-square test, the data uh, is significantly deviation. And so you have to throw it out. So it, yeah. to me, it's not an issue anymore. And I think it, for people that are aware of that, it's not an issue anymore. But I think most of the general public hasn't been made aware of that, that the, the, the raw data from the carbon dating test was not divulged yeah. uh, after that test. And it wasn't until recently that we really got the facts. Yeah. Well, and, and you're right about the, the general public, unless you actually start to dig into it personally. Um, you know, I, I mean, I had the same problem. I, I, I had kind of heard in the background that, you know, the radiocarbon tasting, testing debunked the, uh, the at the time, uh, the authentic, authenticity of the shroud. And, uh, you know, and I kind of just put that away. And it wasn't until I started reading, reading Ian Wilson's book that I said, oh, my God, no, 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 there's a, there's a lot more here than than just this one test that failed. And um, and so unfortunately, the general public and even a lot of Christians aren't going to you know, dig that much further. And so they're going to still believe in the, in the in the resurrection, but they may not necessarily see the real authenticity and uh, of the of the shroud itself. So. Sure. One of, one of the unfortunate side effects from that, that 1988 uh, uh, carbon test being so so uh, published the way it was as, as debunking the shroud was that for the next couple decades, it pretty much took the shroud off off of the radar. Yeah. And as a result of that, many people grew up never having heard of it. Or the only thing they knew about it was the carbon dating test. And I, I found in the high schools I've gone to, I, I've, I've been to probably 25, 30 high schools across the country. I would say, based on my experience, less than half of young people under age 30 have heard of the Shroud. And that's mm-hmm. a direct casualty 
from yeah. that, that yeah. fiasco carbon dating test of 1988. But <clears throat> we're coming out of that now. <clears throat> I think so. I think so. And I know your work and, uh, and hopefully everything else is done. I mean, one of the things, one of my, um, I don't know if I'd call it a mission, but certainly an, object, an objective of, of the book that I've written now is to help to bring that story back to life. And, and uh, hopefully that'll uh, also bring Christians or non-Christians over to Christianity. Hopefully we'll be able to uh, evangelize and, and get people to really see that, uh, you know, if they had doubts before, or if they never real, realized it, and then, hey, here's this, this one thing that proves that resurrection that actually took place, then maybe that'll also start to bring some some non-Christians over to uh, over to uh, Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, with that, um, I know we're really at the end of our time here, and uh, but I definitely uh, thank you so much, Jim. I really, really appreciate it. That was awesome. Um, and thank you so much for, uh, and also thank you for all you do. I mean, you're out there really on the front lines of, uh, of spreading the good word about the shroud, but more importantly, the good word about Jesus and, and that, uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to have the shroud to believe in, in, in the resurrection, but the shroud is definitely something that, uh, is, is of, uh, is of interest to all Christians and certainly even uh, non-Christians. Um, but I do want to mention one thing, and that is uh, I want to mention uh, the website, the shroudconfraternity.org, and that is for the American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud. That's what uh, where a lot of your work and, and, and I think uh, a lot of your efforts kind of uh, try to benefit. And, um, and maybe just talk a second about that, and then we'll kind of close it out. Sure. Well, my job is a communicator in which I should take the scientific information and convey it to people in such a way so that they can understand it. So I'm kind of this in between between the research and the public. How is that information going to kind of get across or so? So that's what I see my role as. And the information gathering is, is the Turin Shroud Center. The Turin Shroud Center, run by Dr. John Jackson in Colorado Springs, conducts the research and educational basis for what I'm talking about. And I take that information, put it into a 60 minute PowerPoint. And that uh, is the evangelization outreach of the American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud. So Turin uh, Shroud Center is research education. And then the Confraternity, the American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud, also based in Colorado Springs, is the evangelical outreach. So that's kind of the faith and, and the reason of it. And I'd like people to be aware that uh, if they would like to have this in their area, perhaps you can show my card up there with the contact information, with an email and a phone number. And uh, basically I, I come and give these talks. I, I don't ask for any honorarium. They just cover my travel expenses. And uh, actually we've done through 13 states now. I'll just pick up another state here recently, uh, another diocese. So I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll go outside the state if people wish to, to see this presentation there. And I bring an actual replica of the shroud and, and, and the company that makes these from Barry Schwartz, they tell me there's there are fewer than 50 of these in the world. Um, EW10 has one, there's one in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. There's a museum in Shreveport, Louisiana that has one, St. John Birchman's. Uh, there are some kind of cheaper facsimiles that are yellow and purple out there that are not, yeah. um, those were not uh, confirmed by Barry Schwartz. Barry took the pictures for the Stirp team, and this is the one company that he, he has, has said, that, okay, this is what I saw 
and this is this is the real thing you you've got it and so we they're the only ones that have the per the the rights to produce those and i happen to have one of those and i bring along with me it's about 15, 14 feet yep. three inches by three feet seven inches it's it's huge we display it at eye level so uh anyway i'll offer I'll put that offering out there i appreciate your help me on that guy if you want to just give my contact information in case uh there are others that like to have this in their community it doesn't necessarily have to be a church setting I do schools, universities, prisons, uh, retired groups, Sertoma clubs, I mean, you name it, the groups anywhere from 30 to 3,000. Well, I will definitely uh, uh, put your uh, contact information, uh, your email, uh, the shroudconfraternity.org, the American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud, uh, the email bsaints2 at gmail.com. And on the uh, on the link when we post the uh, the video, we'll have all of that information on there, and uh, and hopefully that'll lead to you know further uh, communications about the shroud and uh, and then certainly of uh, Jesus Christ. Sure. Uh, well, so God, with God, that, opens, God opens these doors for me, and I'll, I'll go through them. And and uh, <laughs> exactly. with that, I will I will close. And I want to thank you very much, Guy, for your excellent preparation and questions. You did a fine job. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed the con uh, the conversation, Jim. So uh, please stay tuned. Uh, we will have other videos and other interviews uh, on this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. Please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up to uh, view more episodes. Thank you very much.